these aren't just songs. These are declarations. These are echoes of eternity reverberating into time. We are joining with a chorus of angels singing the glorious reality of a God who loves us. And this isn't just a talk. This is the most important thing you can hear right now. Because this is the message of that God who loves you and who wants to draw you close to him and wants to rebuild your life. Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. all about Jesus he's the point of all of this if we miss him then none of this matters like the the children of Israel rebuilding the wall they lost sight of the fact that they were supposed to be a community we need to just see that that it's easy come on to lose sight of the vision and the vision is Jesus this is Sozo Church the reality is that God never intended for us to do life alone. Uh, He designed community. Community comes out of his very nature. Uh, God in in himself embodies perfect unity and community. That's that's what the Trinity, um, that's where where community comes from is the Trinity. It's it's this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united in perfect unity, in perfect communion, in perfect community. And uh, in the very beginning, God creates all that he creates, and he looks down and he sees an isolated, separated, alone person and says, that's not good. It's not my intention. That's not my design. That's not my heart. That's not my, my desire for man. So he, he creates the first family, the foundation for which all community is based off. And, and, and it starts there, but we even see it uh, as God moves on. He doesn't just call an isolated man, but he calls a man, Abraham, and out of him creates a people, a nation for himself. It goes all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. This doesn't go away. We're, we're called to Christ, and when we're called to Christ, we're called to his body, to his people. Even into eternity, we see that God doesn't just send us off into eternity, but rather we go to a city, a community, where we live and dwell together in perfect unity there with one another and with God. And, and our, our text this morning is, is really echoes this same heart. But the amazing thing to me is that this text echoes an answer to the fact that while community is what we long for, community is what we need, community is a necessity for us, we stink at community. We're not good at it. We're, we're not good at, at, at being unified together. I remember hearing years ago of a, of the, a question posed at, at a, it was actually at a college class I was in, and, and bear with me here for a second, the question was posed, how do porcupines mate? Right? I mean, because they're covered in quills. They're, they're, they're designed specifically to not be community animals, right? Like, you don't want to get... Nobody has pet porcupines. Nobody, like, cuddles with a porcupine. Um, I had a dog as a kid. He got, he got whacked by a porcupine tail once, and getting those things out of his face was probably the worst experience that poor dog ever had. Um, they're just not, and, and, I, and I remember this, po- this question was posed, it was, and, and what actually happens in nature, and believe it or not, you can, 
I don't recommend YouTubing animals mating. That's not a, it's not a publicly endorsed YouTube search. But if you do, if you look up porcupines, what they do is they actually dance. They stand up on their hind legs and they put their front paws together and they learn to dance together. And, and it's, it's in finding that rhythm and finding that, that balance together. And I think that's a, a great picture of what happens when people try to get in community together. We, we, we hurt each other. We're, we're a bunch of crackpots, and crackpots have sharp edges. And you get rub up against, and you, you, you come around other people, and it, 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 it gets messy. And yet we're called to that. And so, so when we're called to community and it falls apart, the, the amazing message of Nehemiah is that God is not only invested in establishing, but come on, church, rebuilding community. Community, us with himself, but also us with one another. And so um, as we've been looking at this text, just to give us kind of a, a quick, a very quick uh, recap of where we are. Uh, the, the children of Israel have been called, they've been in the nation, but then they rebelled against God primarily and against one another. And, and God was faithful to his word to scatter them among all nations, but he was also faithful to his word to gather them back together. After 70 years of exile, the doors were opened for them to come back in a sovereign move of God. The, the, the nation of Israel comes back together. They, they're allowed to return but several years go by after that and nothing really happens because the leadership that was put in place of these exiles returning was more loyal to the king than to the king. They were more loyal to the, the present ruling political parties than they were to the God of heaven. And so while people came back, nothing was really rebuilt. Nehemiah hears about this in chapter one. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to this king and the news of Jerusalem's utter and total decay breaks Nehemiah's heart. So much so that he prays and fasts for almost half a year. And in that prayer and in that fasting, God moves upon his heart and alters things inside of Nehemiah. We went over all this, this is, uh, when, it, when it gets podcast, you can go back and listen to all this. But um, in the midst of all of that, God works on his heart. God opens up a door. And, and God, in and through Nehemiah, prompts, provides, and protects the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, rallies the people together. He, uh, he speaks to them. He, he, he fills them with faith and vision. And he, he calls them to rebuild the walls. And and. They start, they start rebuilding. They, they begin, and, and then uh, God provides the workers and the, the, the physical needs that they have for, for the rebuilding, and then he even protects them when those in power there begin to push back and begin to, to come against them. And what we've seen as we've looked at this is that God is the empowering force behind all that's happening here. This is not simply a work of men. I need, I need you to hear this. This was a move of God. In fact, we're going to find out uh, this, this morning I have the tiny little task of preaching three chapters of the Bible to you. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad. Yay, there's hope for the world. Somebody got excited when I said three chapters of the Bible. Um, but they, they, they rebuild the walls and they're in that. And what we find out in these, these three chapters, in chapters uh, five, six, and seven, we find out that they did it in 52 days. Let that hit you for a second. It was told to them that this was utterly impossible. There was no way you could ever possibly rebuild the walls. And because of the unity they had, because of their commitment to the work, they, they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. In 52 days, something went from being impossible to being built. But I, I have bad news that in the midst of all of this, they lost sight of what they were doing. You see, God wanted to rebuild the walls, restore a people, and return them to himself. They just wanted to build walls. 
How do I know that? Because they lost sight of the purpose, the vision, the mission, and the destiny. They wanted uh, prestige and protection, and God said, I want a people. What ends up happening is this all goes utterly sideways. I've said this before to us, that the problem is that, that we sign up for vision, but there's a problem with vision. Does anybody know what the problem with vision is? It degrades to work, <laughs> right? I mean, I mean let, let's just be honest about it. We get excited about the vision, this prophetic idea, this hope-filled prophetic promise of what's going to happen. It's this vision that we're, we're so excited about and we so want to see this happen, but eventually it just slowly degrades to work. I'm excited about being a ripped six-pack clad dude, but I'm not excited about eating healthy food or lifting anything heavy. <laughs> I went to the gym. Everything there is heavy. Even the little, like, I was, oh, grandma's left in that one. I could do that. Nope. No, I'm good. I'm, I'm totally happy. You know, I, I figure, why have a six-pack when you can have a keg? So, <laughs> some of you are catching up with that. Uh, we, we like the idea. We get excited about vision, but, but it slowly degrades to work. I mean, we get excited about the idea, come on, of, of being a part of a church that sees a city turned upside down through the proclamation of the gospel. We get pumped when, when we hear about God's gospel and his kingdom, not just, come on church, not just being declared, but being demonstrated, seeing lost people restored to a right relationship with Jesus, seeing, seeing drug addicts freed from their, from their bondage and their addiction, seeing marriages restored, seeing people without hope filled, not just with hope, but with a faith that can move mountains. We get excited about that until it just turns into holding a baby in the nursery. Oh, come on. We get excited about it till, it till it means that, you know, we're at work and we've publicly declared our trust and faith in Christ and now we're not invited to go out to lunch with people like we used to or we're interrupted in the middle of work and asked to pray for people and now our productivity's down and we're wondering where's God in the midst of me about to get fired because I'm trying to just be a light in a dark place. We get excited about seeing people far from Christ brought near to him through the gospel until they cut us off on the freeway. And Jesus calls us to wave with all five fingers and not just one. <laughs> Come on, vision slowly degrades to work. That says something about me that that's work to me. <clears throat> we'll, just, we'll just move on. So what happens here is this, that, that in the midst of all of this, uh, this great rebuilding that's happening, the people lose sight. Of, of really the vision of being a people set apart for the purposes and the plans of God. So we're going we're gonna to look at just, uh, we're not going to read all three chapters, so I'm sorry. I know that really disappointed some of you. Um, but we're just going to look through uh, a few of the highlights here and see what happens. The first thing that we see, how we know they lost sight of the real vision, is they began to take advantage of one another instead of being united in unity. So chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now there arose a great outcry, of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Now what is kind of subtly here in the text, you're going to see it a little bit clearer in a little while, is that there was a famine in the land. So those who were well off were saying, hey, we're good. We got a lot of kids. We have a good in those days, that would have meant we have a thriving business, really. We have, we have the ability to make money and, and to provide for ourselves. So, therefore, uh, let's go and let's get grain. Let's keep alive. Nothing wrong with that. Verse 3. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain because of the famine. 
And there were those, uh, and there were those who said, "We have borrowed money for the king's taxes on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our bro- brothers and our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves." And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. So understand what that means. They've had to borrow money from other, uh, what should be family people, what should be church folk. They've had to, these people are taking advantage of them by borrowing, letting them borrow money and then exacting high taxes and interest rates on them and high high returns so that now they're not only... uh, in debt, and they're not only caught up in all that, but somebody else owns their field, so they don't even have the capacity to earn the money to get their sons and their daughters back from in slavery. And so, you know, Nehemiah just sat down and pet a sheep, because that's what good, godly men do. They just, they're really gentle and calm, and they never get upset. No. Verse 6 said, I was very angry. I have to just stop for a second. I love that it's very for all of you who are raised in Christianity, taught by people with big, poofy, multicolored hair, that's a bad word. Angry should have four letters in it. It's not a, Christians don't feel angry. But Nehemiah says, no, this made me angry. It should. Come on. A God of justice and righteousness gets angry at this thing. Amen? It's an appropriate response. Women being sold into slavery. He gets angry. And he says, and I, I, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself. So I, I had to look at that. I was like, so he took counsel with so He thought about himself. No, literally in Hebrew, what that literally means is like, I calmed myself down. He had to calm himself down. I love that. I relate to Nehemiah here quite a bit. So I took counsel with myself, and I brought charge against the nobles and their officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, And I held a great assembly against them. I love this. This is great. I'm not making any reference to anything politically going on now, but come on. Town hall meeting, verse 8. And said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. So can you see what's happening? Like They're selling them into slavery and Nehemiah and all these guys are raising money to buy them back. They were silent and could not find a, uh, find a word to say. So, so what's happening here is they, they lost sight of the vision because instead of seeing the real purpose and the real, the real uh, goal of God in the midst of all this as reestablishing his people back to himself, they saw it as an opportunity, oh, come on, to make some money. And Nehemiah calls them out on this because while God had prompted and God had provided and God had protected, now God was putting a proper perspective onto what's going on. He's shining light into dark places so that proper alignment, proper perspective of God's people can happen. So they, they, they're, they're exacting interest and, and exacting those things. So, so Nehemiah reestablishes taking care of one another, looking out for each other, a gospel perspective on these things. They finish the wall, as I said, in 52 days. And then what Nehemiah does is Nehemiah puts in a a godly structure, a godly perspective, godly leadership. So we're going to see this now in in chapter 7. It says, Now when the walls had been built and I had set set up the doors, 
and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. So that means all of it's completely done. Last thing you would do when you build walls would be hang the, the, the gates because they're very heavy. And if the wall's not completed, you could damage the wall. So um, that's the extent of my wall building knowledge. So there you go. Um, and so this, what he's saying is completely done. It's all completely taken care of. And it says, and I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. Please catch this. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Not the most talented, not the most gifted, not the best dressed. But he was faithful, come on, and he was God-fearing. He had, he had his, his priorities right. But then what he does is he puts him in charge, but he puts up a, a good structure here. Verse 3 says, And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be open until the sun is hot. And while there are still standing guards, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's smart, right? He said, put some of them at the gate, uh, some of them at their guard post, and some in front of their own house. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. So he's wise. He puts people who live in the city in charge of protecting the city, because come on, you're going to protect your own stuff the best, right? So Nehemiah reestablishes uh, not just the walls, but a proper way. And you can get into all the historical reasons why he had them only open during the sun, because that way you could see people who were coming, and they wouldn't want to march in the middle of the hot sun, and blah, 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 I don't really care. So there's all good reasons for it. What I want you to understand is this. Nehemiah wasn't just interested in an external facade of a wall. He wanted a proper structure to be built in its place, proper order with proper leadership, godly people. The other problem they had was that no people had really come back to the city yet. It was just mostly a tent city at this point. And again, God wasn't just interested in erecting walls so that they could, like, look at our walls, God. We built walls. God wanted a people. He wanted a city established. So in the rest of chapter 7, Nehemiah brings back and, and goes through and finds out it had been set over 70 years since people had lived in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah goes back to the old record. This is chapter 7. Um, if you are an accountant, you'll love chapter 7. I just want to be positive. If you're an accountant, you'll love chapter 7. And so he goes through all of this, and, and he finds out who used to live there. Imagine, if you would for a second, that, that, that something happened in Spokane, and we all had to flee the city, leave our homes, leave our places of work, leave everything, and, and the city was so, you know, destroyed and, and brought down. And then 80 years later, your kids or your grandkids or some of you, your great-grandkids, get called back to live here. They'd have to figure out where they lived and who, who really lived here and who, you know, who lived in the, on the South Hill with all the cool people and, and who, I'm just kidding, um, and, you know, who... <laughs> Wow. Um, or the north side with the even cooler people. <laughs> um, they had to figure it all out. So he brought those people back because, again, they had lost sight of what this was all about. It wasn't just about the walls. It wasn't just about rebuilding these walls. They had, they had gotten so focused on this one task that they were set to do that they'd lost the vision. Now, when we started this series, what we said was our goal was not to just learn historically about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but we believe this is a great picture of what happens when God restores us back into right relationship with him and then rebuilds our life in this big process we call sanctification. It's a $6 word, sanctification. It's the rebuilding of our lives, the redoing of our lives, where God takes our broken, busted, and disgusted lives and brings us back, come on, into right relationship with him. But can I tell you, in the midst of that process, you have to keep priorities right. I'm, I'm just going to be honest. This, this week, I was uh, digging through the basement of our house, working on some things, and 
been fighting a cold all week, so I worked from home, and I was looking for a book specifically, and I was trying to find it, and I came across a bunch of my old journals. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a journaler. Um, I, I just always have been. I, I like praying with a pen in my hand. I like reading my Bible with a pen in my hand. It's just, just how I process is through writing. Nothing against computers, but just, there's something about pen and paper that helped me process. And so I found these, and some of these are 15, almost 20 years old. From the very beginning of my marriage, I, I have whole pages where I'm praying for my daughter, Adonaya, who's 15 now. She wasn't even born yet. It's kind of weird to go back and read some of those things. Can I tell you the, the real hardest part for me was remembering just how simple my walk with God was back then. Um, just how focused on the important stuff I really was back then. In uh, Revelation chapter 2, I'm trying to, gentlemen, my, oh, maybe it's working, I don't know. There we go, thank you. Uh, Revelation 2, um, it addresses this. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and how you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know, I know, he says, you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. These are, this is a, I'm just going to say it, man. This is a good church. I mean, imagine this, this church, try to pull yourself out of, of reading the Bible like it's a flannel graph and realize what he's saying. He's saying like, in that time, if you thought you were called by God, you went to Ephesus and found out if you were really called by God. They had the capacity in themselves to, to discern between like, this guy has the anointing of the Lord on his life and this guy doesn't. These were the people, they, they endured persecution. They were doing the work. But here's what he says. He says, I know you've endured your patience and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, listen to these words. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Hear me, church, this is not moral depravity. No, the, the pastors weren't sleeping around or stealing from the offering plate. There wasn't some sort of rampant sexual abuse happening. There wasn't some sort of horrible uh, you know, you know, misappropriation of people or abuse or anything. They were a great church, and yet God calls them to repent. He calls their leaving of their primary affection toward him falling. Can I tell us, look, I, look I'm, I'm excited about what God wants to do through this church, but if we lose our passion for the name of Jesus, then I'm just going to be blunt. What is the point? If he's not the point, then what's the point? We have a saying around here. We like it so much, we wrote it on the front of our drums. It's all about Jesus. He's the point of all of this. If we miss him, then none of this matters. Like the, the children of Israel rebuilding the wall, they lost sight of the fact that they were supposed to be a community together. And we're going to read next week about how God brought them back to him. And I'm really, really excited to get to that. But, but right now, we, we need to just see that, that it's easy, come on, to lose sight of the vision. 
And the vision, I'm going to just be blunt, is Jesus. It's a growing, thriving love relationship. Well, I don't know what I'm doing here, guys. Um, (laughs) With Jesus, I shouldn't be trusted. With the screen thing, I'm good to preach. Oh, wow. Okay. It's about first love. We we sang it. Is, Is Jesus king of our hearts? He still hold that place. Yeah, yeah, but, but I don't smoke or chew or run with anybody who do, so I'm good. No, is Jesus, come on, still the king of your heart? Or have you just learned new vocabulary so you can hang around with Christians and not feel guilty anymore? Is that what's happened, or has Jesus captivated and captured your heart and your mind, your affections? Because that's what it's all about. That's the priority that we have to keep in place. Everything flows from that place. And and we come to this place. I want to try to pull this as much as I can into the New Testament now. That comes from a place of the gospel creating a church. So it comes from us being returned to Christ. But in that, we're not, I said this earlier, we're not saved in isolation, but we're brought into community. Our affection for Christ comes from the reality of the gospel. You see, your call to love Jesus is utterly in response to his love that he already has for you. See, this is, this is how you know it has to be a supernatural thing. You can't be commanded to love someone, but you can be gifted to love someone. He can give you the love that you need to love him with. So this is not a works thing. This is not a drum up some emotional response thing. This is a submit and surrender to the heart of God and allow him to work and move through you. This happens through the gospel. And in the gospel, the gospel creates a church by reaching, restoring, and rebuilding people who are are outside of the family of God. It doesn't just build a system. The the gospel isn't about establishing a religious order. It's not about building up systems and and things. It's not about building a wall. Come on, it's about inclusiveness and, and drawing people to Christ. So here's what I want us to see about this. I want us to get back to the point of why we do what we do. I heard Andy Stanley once say, there's three things, Andy Stanley's a pastor and an author. He said, there's three things that make vision not stick. Failure, uh, you, you set a goal and you fail. Anybody ever had a New Year's resolution? <laughs> Anybody ever kept a New Year's resolution? Uh, <laughs> we won't go there. Um, Failure, you, you, you have a goal and then you fail at trying to do that goal and you give up on that goal. It, it makes vision not stick. The second thing he said was, was success, right? Like you start down the road and you, let's say you're you know, trying to lose weight and you, you get into the diet and you lose five pounds and so what do you do? You reward yourself with a cake. <laughs> success has a way of drawing our attention away from the vision. But the third thing surprised me the most, life. So pretty much everything between success and failure makes vision not stick. Just the, not, the, the, the monotony, the mundaneness of life. So I want to make it really clear for us what I mean by this idea of the gospel creating a church, us keeping Jesus as the focus of our heart, and us not losing sight of the vision as a people together. The gospel must be embraced personally, expressed corporately, so that it might expand globally. Let me try to break this down for us in the last few minutes here uh, and and. See if we can't make some sense of this. What I mean is this, that the gospel is a message that must be heard and understood by an individual. 
Okay, we can't lose sight of this. And in the rest of these next two, if we miss this first one, then what we're building really isn't a kingdom-based thing. It's, it's something different. It's a, it's a club. It's a community. It might even be like a, a do-gooders thing, but it's not the church. The gospel is for you. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the God of all gods, the God who created and sustains all things, entered into human history, came down and dwelled among us and lived a perfect life, lived the best life. He he was born perfect. How many of us can say that? I got some outlaws and in-laws. Come on, I got some people in my birth story that, you know, my family lineage that ain't exactly perfect. But Jesus was born perfect. His lineage is perfect. He lived a perfect life. He lived such a perfect life. Do you understand that you can still meet people today who go, like, I'm not really into the church thing, and I don't even really like the gospel thing, but man, Jesus is kind of cool. That's how good of a life Jesus lived, because he loved and served other people. By the way, you can't love Jesus and hate the church. That's like telling me, you love me, but you hate my wife. We're not going to be friends. And by the way, you chose very poorly. By the way, no one's ever said that to me. 17 years of marriage. I've heard the opposite. Why are you laughing? That's really mean. It's supposed to be therapy for me. Um, love you too, David. Um, it, it's a message. So, so Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He, he dies a perfect death. He paid your debt. But not only did he just pay your debt, he triumphed over all of his enemies. The gospel is the news of the victorious entry of a king into the earth. He beat everything that opposed him. He paid your debt. Died on a cross three days later. He had a perfect resurrection. He came shooting out of that grave, demonstrating his triumph over all that had tried to stop him. And now, for those of us who repent and believe the gospel... We now stand before a God who used to have wrath toward us and now only has affection and joy and love toward us because when he looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus, the triumphant, glorious, ever-reigning, never-ceasing king. That's a message you have to hear, you have to repent, and you have to believe. I can't do it for you. No one in this room can do it for you. It's a gift that God wants to give you. So it has to be embraced personally, but it also has to be expressed corporately. It's not just, yeah, like we hear the message, check that off the box, and then we move on to other things. It has to be, hear me please, the, 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 the foundation, the framework, and the filter for everything we do as a church. We don't base what we do and how we live together in in community off of a system that is apart from the gospel, but rather we let the gospel filter, frame, and found everything that we do. It is the basis for all things. That's why if you come to church here, we love you, but you're not going to hear 17 steps to have a healthy marriage. What you're going to hear is look at the gospel and base your marriage around that. Jesus sacrificed for his bride. Husbands, are you sacrificing for your bride? The church surrenders in love and affection to the the, the king, Jesus. Wives, are we doing that? Husbands, are we doing that? Wives, are you uh, submitting and sacrificing to your husbands? It's about the gospel. Come on. It's not 17 ways and like 14 different communication skills that you need to learn. Communicating is great and all that's great. But but Paul even says in in, uh, the verse that gets read at every wedding, If you don't have love as the foundation, then it doesn't matter because the gospel was born out of love. Are you hearing me, church? It's it's got to be the thing that shapes us as a community. 
This is where they went wrong with, with, with the nation of Israel in rebuilding the walls. They saw an opportunity to make money off of what God was doing. Now, I want to be clear. I, I bought into, in my er, you know, early 20s, this idea that like the most totally radical like, way to live for Jesus was to be a communist. So I moved into an apartment with 26 other dudes, and we just lived in community together. That lasted like six weeks, and I lost my salvation. But we, we point to Acts, but Acts, they had everything in common, and they gave it away. No, what happened in Acts, I just, I stepped in all this, I've got to go there. So what happens in Acts is this. In Acts, what happens is the gospel gets preached for the first time ever to a bunch of out-of-town people who then, the only church is the one in Jerusalem, so they are so committed, come on somebody, to Jesus and to the community that he's building, they move their whole lives to Jerusalem. Imagine if you picked your city based on your church instead of picking your church based on your city. Let that bake your noodle for a minute. So they, they picked their city based on the church. Well, they left everything. And so the church that was there, the people that were there that had some, said, hey, we'll share. We're going to help. We're going to get you established here. We're going to get you built up here. We're going to help you succeed. They, it wasn't just free handout line. It wasn't communism. It wasn't everybody gets the same. But hear me, this is the reality of the gospel. Everywhere the gospel has been the message of the church, everywhere she has gone, that those who are outcast, those who are impoverished, those who are, who, who are written off onto the sidelines have been elevated. One of the most amazing pictures of this that I've ever seen in my life is in the nation of, of India. So in India, if you don't realize, and this is a great thing, if anybody ever tells you, well, I just think all religions are the same, you can be assured of one thing. They've never studied world religions. Because in India, the whole, the whole framework and mindset is based around Hinduism. And I remember being raised, okay, I'm just going to be honest, being raised as, you know, in like an American pseudo-Christian house. Hinduism and, and that whole thing just seemed like really cool. Smoked a lot of weed back then. And so... It was like, this will be cool. And I remember, I remember going to a nation where, where Hinduism was there, and it was, it, was, it was the foundation of it. For me, it was Indonesia. And I went there to a, to a Hindu part of Indonesia, and I'm hanging out, and I'm trying to learn about this thing. And here's what I realized. It is an utterly caste system, meaning that if you're born in poverty, they just assume that clearly you did something really jacked up in your last life, and now God is punishing you. And oh, by the way, in Christianity, you have one God who you have to worry about making angry. In Hinduism, this was my thinking back then, you had like... 11 bajillion. I'm like, I was struggling in Christianity thinking about pleasing one God. And it's a caste system, meaning that if you, if you are born in, you know, with some horrible disease, they just believe it clearly. That was how God, the gods wanted it. You were, you know, if you work really, really hard and you're really, really good, then maybe next time you can have a less bad disease. You'll die and you'll get reincarnated and, and, and you'll just eventually work your way up. And I remember being like really fascinated by this and really confused and fascinated. And then I find out, okay, so what's the end goal? And they're like, oh, it's Nirvana. And I was like, great, that sounds cool. I like that band. And they said, no, 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 Nirvana, you, you, you ascend to the level where eventually you just get absorbed into the great cosmic goo. What? Yeah, you go into nirvana, you get absorbed into the unity of all things, and you lose yourself. And I was like, Eminem's cool, but I don't want to lose myself. I mean, it, it's, that's, it's not, that's not going to work for me. Here's the amazing thing. So India, 
orphans are just thrown to the side. Widows are just thrown to the side. And yet, and yet the gospel moves in there. Hear this, church. And the gospel says, no, this, the gospel responds to these things. It responds in love and in care and in service. So Christians move in, and they open up orphanages. And one of our sister churches, our sending church, Hope Church in Montana, was a part of establishing, catch this, this was in 2008, 6, 7, 9, somewhere around there. For the first time in history, the history of India, a widow's home opened. Stop and realize it took that long. But it was the gospel that did that because the gospel said, no, 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 widows need to be cared for. The, the Bible tells us real religion is taking care of those people. So we're gonna take care of them. Not only that, but, but the, the man who God gave the vision to, Ernest Kamanapali said, hey, wait a second. I got all these orphanages with these kids who need love. And I have all these widows who have lots of love to give. So what do they do? They take an orphanage and they put a widow's home on top of it. So now every orphanage in Man and Ministries is, has a widow's home on top of it. And so those widows now have a purpose. They get to love and serve kids. Do you know that the, 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 some of the highest ranking women in government in India were trained in Christian universities? Because they couldn't be trained in Hindu universities, women aren't allowed to be educated. Come on, what I'm trying to show you is this. When the gospel is expressed corporately, it expands globally. The kingdom of God, the goal of the kingdom of God is to never cease from increasing on the earth. I've read the last chapter of the book, got really good news for somebody. We win. I'm going to go here. In a few weeks, a new person is going to occupy the White House. Oh, no. But what if he wins? I don't know, but what if she wins? But what if those other two dudes win? I don't know. Here's what I know. The day after the election, the incumbent will still be on the throne. Jesus ain't going anywhere. He's not up for re-election. He's not going to be marginalized or written off. The highest court in the land will never be the Supreme Court. The highest court in the land will be the courts of heaven where we as sons and daughters of God can go boldly and find help and grace in our time of need. I get that the world is a little bit wonky right now. Okay, let's just level. Let's just call a spade a spade. Wonky. But the gospel still transforms lives the gospel, come on, when the church embraces individually, expresses corporately, and allows it to expand globally, the gospel can still turn the world upside down. I believe it with every ounce of faith and belief in my heart. It's why we do what we do. Are you hearing me? I'm trying to get us not to lose sight of the vision. I know the work can be drudgery. But if our passion stays solely fixed on the heart of Jesus, and our eyes stay fixed on what he has called us to, impossible things will begin to happen. Do you think that in the midst of, of the people of Israel picking up rocks, I looked it up. They did not have John Deere tractors. No forklifts. They didn't, they didn't even have iPhones. And they built a wall. It was physical, manual labor. 
Do you think that while they were picking up rocks and stacking them on top of each other, they were like, it is so great to be in a move of God? No. I remember asking, actually, kind of a neat connection. I remember asking Ernest Gentile, the guy who actually founded the very, very roots of this church. He was at Outreach in downtown Spokane that grew into the Rock of Ages, which merged into Sozo Church, which that's you. And I was talking to him. He's, he's, uh, he was at MFI. This was a long time ago. And it was at MFI annual in Portland, the gathering of our pastors. And I said, man, what was it like in those early days? <laughs> and he goes, it's a lot of work. Yeah, but I mean, people were getting healed and people were getting, a lot of marriages were getting restored. And I mean, I've heard stories. And he's like, yeah, but in the midst of it, it just was a lot of work. And all of a sudden, it was like the guilt I felt of being tired lifted. Come on, I, I just want to propose this idea to you. Moves of God, when you're in moves of God, don't feel like moves of God. They just feel like work. But you look back, it's easy for us to look in here and see Nehemiah quote, the hand of God was upon me, rally together and fight for our God will fight for us. And the Lord put it on my heart and he, and, I, and he empowered us to do these great things. But in the midst of it, come on, it was just picking up really flipping heavy rocks and putting on top of other really freaking heavy rocks. The problem with vision is it slowly degrades to work. The problem with this, embracing the gospel personally, that means I have to admit I'm wrong. Anybody like admitting that they're wrong? I've taught my daughter this, the first law of learning. Do you know what the first law of learning is? You always feel dumber before you feel smarter. I have to admit I'm wrong. I don't know. We have to express it corporately to see it expand globally. This This is the mission. This is the purpose that God calls us to. This is so important to me because the church is God's. It's not ours. This thing that we're a part of, it's, it's, it's his desire, it's his purpose, it's his, his goal, not ours. So this morning, we're going to respond, and, and I really want to get back to the first piece of this and, and say, if you're here and your, your affection for Jesus has drawn back a little bit, I'm, I'm being honest, I was so convicted reading my own words in my own journals I'm just remembering the simplicity of just loving Jesus. When it wasn't about this or that or the other, it was just about loving him. It was just about serving him. It was just about being near to him. If, if you've lost sight of that this morning, church, can I just, can I ask you in, in all love and boldness to repent? Look, it's great. I, I, I'm loving seeing our community expand as a church and hearing stories of, of lives being restored. But if we as individuals lose our passionate love and affection for Jesus, and this can be a great rotary club, but it can't be a church. It, it can be the best Eagles club in the world. Come on, if, if why we gather in this place isn't Jesus, then they're just songs that are probably a little too loud. And these are just really, I'm just the worst TED Talk stand-up comedian ever. And this is just bread, and this is just a cup, and this is just the worst snacks after an Eagles meeting ever. (laughs) But, but if Jesus is really what it's all about, if the gospel really is true, 
then these aren't just songs. These are declarations. These are echoes of eternity reverberating into time. We are joining with a chorus of angels singing the glorious reality of a God who loves us. And this isn't just a talk. This is the most important thing you can hear right now. Because this is the message of that God who loves you and who wants to draw you close to him and wants to rebuild your life. And and community groups aren't just fellowship and hanging out. They're, They're where our lives are rebuilt, where grace is imparted to our hearts. Come on, if Jesus is the center of all this, then nothing is more important than this. And these aren't trivial, and this isn't light, and this isn't just whatever. This is real. Nothing is more real than this if Jesus stays at the center.